can't tell you all my secrets. Secrets are dangerous things, Audrey. Do you have any? No. Laura had a lot of secrets. Finding those out is my job. podcast for both first-time and veteran viewers of Twin Peaks, the mystery series that ran for two seasons in the early 90s on ABC, followed by a feature film and, 25 years later, a limited series on Showtime. I avoid spoilers for upcoming episodes, which can be found in a separate feed, link in the show notes, but I do include a section called Shape of the Show, where I discuss the overall context or structure of the series, and sometimes fan speculation from first-time viewers, without giving away details of the plot. If you're a new listener who has just discovered this episode and wants to know more about the podcast, check out Episode Zero Show Format. This is the sixth episode of the first season and is referred to as such on Netflix, but I'll probably tend to refer to it as Episode Six, following the DVD and Blu-ray designations. During its German broadcast, the episode was dubbed Realization Time, and although unofficial, this episode title is used on many streaming services and associated media. On screen, Cooper declines to sleep with Audrey, Leo kills Waldo the Bird, Audrey gets a job at One-Eyed Jacks, Cooper and the Bookhouse Boys go undercover at One-Eyed Jacks, Don and James set up Jacoby by dressing Maddie as Laura, and Catherine discovers Ben and Josie are conspiring against her. What is Twin Peaks? Who is Agent Cooper? And who is Laura Palmer? What is Twin Peaks? Twin Peaks, at least if we allow ourselves to extend its conceptual boundaries just over the national border, is a bustling little burg. One-Eyed Jacks is positively humming with worldly activities and big spenders eager to take it all in. Horn's department store caters to wealthy clientele with soap opera tie-in promotions. The Great Northern is a gathering spot before an exciting night on the town, and even the exterior of Dr. Jacoby's home looks like it's sort of a more inhabited, busy kind of used area. I've mentioned before Grail Marcus's conception of Twin Peaks as a deeply divided yet dreamily complementary fusion of two American myths, the Sylvan Village and the film noir city. In this episode, we're definitely starting to lean toward the latter. And there's something irresistible about containing the latter in the former, like finding a hidden treasure or a booby trap just as thrilling on a quiet street. This is, of course, a very Blue Velvet idea. Wait around long enough in the picket fence daydream land of Norman Rockwell, and as soon as the sun sets, a this-is-it neon sign will flicker above the nondescript storefront, and suddenly you'll realize you're on the wrong side of Lincoln. But there's also a sense that Mark Frost's self-conscious genre vision is slowly, subtly taking the reins from Lynch's more rooted, ambient sensibility of place in the pilot. It's a rich combination of elements, especially as we're frequently reminded that for all its espionage, innuendo, and intrigue, Twin Peaks is not simply the hodgepodge urban every city of the Hill Street Blues. It's a bit of a fairy tale land, 
an idyllic community lost in the wilderness and reflecting the dangers of the wider world in a funhouse mirror, like a combination of Thornton, Billy, and Laura Ingalls Wilder. Who is Agent Cooper? I just love Cooper in this episode. When Blackie compares him to Cary Grant, she isn't overshooting. He starts off strong, very much playing the chivalrous knight, and demonstrates throughout that he can effortlessly balance all the demands one might place upon a hero. Good humor, delightful eccentricity, admirable loyalty, skillful knowingness, and perceptive but courteous when discussing sensitive matters. Surprisingly, this episode was not originally to begin as it does, Rather than the affectionate vow of friendship that Cooper offers Audrey along with the Malton Fries, episode 6's first scene was supposed to show them downstairs eating breakfast together, a grinning, almost leering tease of did-they-or-didn't-they audience expectations, as Audrey gazes at Cooper and he ignores her, all business. This would be Cooper as the out-of-town sophisticate, maybe even a bit of a cad, how old are you and careful, Audrey, rather than the in-over-his-head outsider suggested at the end of episode 5. Instead, we get neither. Instead, it's a noble, thoughtful, even paternal figure who bridges the gap between the wise and innocent aspects of Cooper's persona. And as the exchange with Harry suggests, Cooper is also capable of navigating tricky situations of all sorts. The perfect man for this job. Who is Laura Palmer? Which brings us to the question of, what job is that? The episode reminds us of Laura's centrality right away, essentially interrupting a personal moment between Cooper and Audrey to remind us of its larger context. Both of them are there in that room, essentially because of Laura Palmer. Laura is a lost girl that Cooper must posthumously discover, and also a femme fatale that Audrey can only stumble as she attempts to imitate. Both aspects are present in the tape recording, our second opportunity to listen to Laura's voice after frequently regarding only her image. Only the rather flippantly handled flashback in episode 1 allows us to perceive voice and image simultaneously. Of course, episode 6 also offers a clever facsimile of this disjointed Laura voice image. A disembodied Laura speaks to Jacoby over the phone as he views a video of a silent Laura gazing back at him from the TV set, and of course, both are actually Maddie, who immediately shifts her vocal tone back down to her own, less heightened, ethereal manner when James asks her if the trick worked. There's something about this stunt which perfectly captures the show's poignant mythologization of Laura. It's warm yet cool distance from her actual presence. Always just around the bend, but never quite there. Does the ominous, unseen presence watching Maddie at episode's end know whether or not she's the real Laura? Is there a real Lara? The feel of this episode is, well, an absolute delight. Thanks to the small ecstasies of Caleb Deschanel and Harley Payton, and the snug way it fits into the lead-up to season one's finale, which is probably mostly Mark Frost doing. It feels fitting that this episode offers Audrey's biggest star turn so far, because I think she's the face of Twin Peaks as audience-alluring pop culture phenomenon. And aside from maybe episode two, this is the episode that best captures that quality. For all its plottiness, Deschanel's direction, especially early on, establishes a consistency with that quintessential Twin Peaks mood, the evocative and contemplative atmosphere captured in quiet, subtly sound-designed ambiances and patient, long-take camera work, although Deschanel echoes Lynch, Gladder, and Dunham by creating a one-shot scene as Maddie walks down the stairs, 
That moment is so short that perhaps more significant is the Pete Harry Josie scene, which splices in just one necessary insert of her photos, but is otherwise all one shot. So continuing that tradition there. And yet, other than the obligatory nods to the surrounding environments, there's no real woodsy material here. The eerie spiritual underworld of the series falls completely silent for once. The worldly intrigue of an insurance scam, the very concretely social entanglements of Laura Palmer, and locales like a busy tourist trap casino and ritzy big city style department store all move to the foreground. It's remarkable that this really feels like Twin Peaks, indeed in some ways the uber Twin Peaks, even though in other ways it's a long way from what we initially thought of as Twin Peaks. It's also Twin Peaks as TV. I'm reminded of Keith Phipps' write-up on the series in the AV Club, probably the first coverage of the show I ever read back in 2008 when I first watched Twin Peaks. He writes, A couple of posts back, I suggested that the problem with Twin Peaks is that after the pilot and the whacked brilliance of the dream sequence that ends episode two, there's nowhere to go but down. But after watching the fifth and sixth episodes of the first season again, I realized I was wrong. Those first episodes are the TV equivalent of an overpowering infatuation, but it's episodes like these that lead to a sustained love. The plot keeps chugging forward, the characters get more complex, and the weirdness deepens without drawing down everything around it. These episodes confirm that it wasn't just a fleeting phenomenon, but an honest-to-goodness great show. And I think that sense of it really sums up my kind of turnaround on this episode, why I like it so much now, me personally. As for myself, all in all, I really love the way that Lynch's esoteric, moody pilot has been translated, without completely losing its essential character, into a week-to-week narrative thriller. I do, though, wonder what Lynch himself really thought about all this, but we'll save that discussion for a later episode. This is the first episode directed by Caleb Deschanel. As you can see from that first minute of the episode, a lot of cuts back and forth, It's similar to Tim Hunter's episode in sort of composing a scene going back and forth, but in this case, just between two characters in a small space versus across this whole room. So it's less complex and more of just an intimate character moment. Like previous Twin Peaks directors, Leslie Linka-Gladder, Tim Hunter, and of course, David Lynch himself, Deschanel was a notable alumnus of the American Film Institute, in his case, graduating a year before Lynch enrolled. And like Dwayne Dunham, Deschanel was an associate of George Lucas, stretching even further back. He attended USC in the mid-60s, where he, Lucas, Walter Murch, John Milius, and several others were dubbed, perhaps in retrospect, the Dirty Dozen, going on to associate with Francis Ford Coppola's American Zoetrope operation and forming the core of New Hollywood in the 70s. Deschanel's most notable success was as a cinematographer, shooting a run of classics in the 70s and 80s, including The Black Stallion, Being There, The Right Stuff, and The Natural. He's also credited for additional camera work on THX 1138, The Godfather, and Apocalypse Now, among others. At the time he first directed Twin Peaks, Deschanel had also directed two feature films, The Escape Artist in 1982 and Crusoe in 1986 or 88. I'm not sure. I wrote 86, but I think it might be 88. A decade past the peak of the young Hollywood auteurs, but still kind of a few years before the indie boom really got going. Deschanel, kind of similarly to both Hunter and and Tina Rathborn, who directed an earlier episode, were all attempting to helm offbeat humanist dramas in a studio system that was no longer particularly interested in producing them. But they still get it made. Rathborn's film was by Columbia. Deschanel got produced by Orion and I think another studio. And I'm not sure who made Hunter's films, but these were like, you know, studio productions. 
Besides the AFI, his link to Twin Peaks was through Donna Hayward's mother, Eileen, played by his wife, Mary Jo Deschanel. And like many Twin Peaks actors, his children went into show business, too. Peggy Lipton's daughter with Quincy Jones is Rashida. Russ Tamlin's daughter is Amber. And the Deschanel's daughters are Emily and, of course, Zoe. From Deschanel's work on this episode, his director of photography roots are quite apparent. This is one of the most lovingly lit and color-coordinated episodes on an already very visual show. But Deschanel has also a wonderful way with actors, pulling some of the best performances from several of them and cultivating a mood that's at once serene and exciting. His comments on this aspect of the series uh, at large uh, in Brad Duke's oral history, reflections are, are worth quoting here. He muses, it was a slow show, but you never felt it dragged. You always sense that there was something going on under the surface that you had to find. The leisurely pace of it felt like there was a time bomb in a bag in the side of the room. It had this sense that at any moment, something terrible could happen, or something exciting or wonderful could happen. It just created this wonderful reality. I also love Deschanel's subtle sound work on the show, crafting a windy ambiance that makes the walls of these sets sound not like flats propped up on a soundstage, but thin barriers barely keeping the natural world at bay. As far as the writers go, this is Harley Payton's second episode of Twin Peaks, and it's by far my favorite Payton script of the season. While he was nominated and is more usually celebrated for the grand narrative focus of the funeral episode, this one has many much more iconic scenes, I think, um, I mean, there were some great scenes in the funeral episode, don't get me wrong, but this one, I think, you know, if that's going to be a competition, win, wins out. Definitely uh, the most iconic dialogue, and it moves with a narrative confidence that's marvelous to behold. In particular, Audrey thrives in Peyton's hands, hitting the perfect mix between savviness and vulnerability. In this version of Cooper, quick on his feet, compassionate, wise, and delighted by the challenges of undercover banter, also feels closer to the ideal than the one in Peyton's previous venture. The cherry stem, a trick that Peyton penned uh, into the teleplay last minute, marveling as he watched it become a proto-viral moment a few months later. It was based on something a friend of his did at a dinner, just an offhand moment, and he was like, oh, that's cool, I'll put it in. And he's like, what a crazy thing to see your sort of in-joke become like a cultural meme, you know, within, I think he says weeks in the oral history, but it was a little longer than that. His memory's deceiving him. It's really one of the unforgettable visual touches, though, as I said. And, and as far as the dialogue goes, even if solely for the minute or so that opens with Cooper saying, Harry, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, Peyton deserves a place in Twin Peaks Valhalla. Forget the Emmy nomination, this is his masterpiece. For some context on this, this was the fifth episode to go into production in the fall of 1989, just before Lynch's episode would be shot out of sequence. Uh, because of Wild at Heart, he had to delay his own production. And in some cases, this actually overlapped with both his production and that of the season finale, given location necessities. By now, it was late November or early December, and the series had been shooting for over a month, maybe two months, depending how much time they had to spend on each episode. There was a sense of a race to the finish by this point, but apparently everybody was having a ball. A real rhythm had been established with everyone immersed in their characters and, and the world as well. And despite the different directors, there seems to have been a feeling that they just shot an extended movie more than a usual season of TV. That's it for this episode. Tomorrow we will continue covering season one, episode seven, with the Who Killed Laura Palmer mystery and the clues brought up uh, in this episode. So... Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy this work, and consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash 
Lost in the Movies. Looking forward to a week of discussing this as, again, this is just one of my favorite episodes of Season 1. And make sure you also check out the Illustrated Companion linked in the show notes below so that uh, you can see the screenshots that go with this, the character rankings listed out, uh, the Time Magazine cover. uh, You know, I found some cool screenshots uh, related to Aldous Huxley and uh, other topics that come up in this podcast as well. So that was kind of fun. Um, What was the other one? There was something else I I, uh, pulled up last night when I was working on this. Oh, yeah, I had fun illustrating an idea. I mean, it was a very goofy Photoshop of somebody's uh, idea of combining a racer head and the Bob Newhart show. So stuff like that. I have fun within this, but it's all screenshots of everything and all the podcasts for the coming week. See you tomorrow. 